Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Or what is the star child? Could it be the remains of a human-alien hybrid? Is there new DNA information? Well, hello there, and we're back after two weeks, and we welcome you to the 241st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. But before we welcome our guest, it's time for, you guessed it, our weekly paranormal contest. So our question from two weeks ago, not last week, because we got pushed over by the Red Sox, uh, what Mexican sky watcher is credited with taking the first known photograph of a flying humanoid? Well, didn't everybody know that? No! Not one single person got it right. The answer was Salvador Guerrero, one of the most respected sky watchers in Mexico, with many hours of UFO videos. While doing his regular sky watch on the roof of his home in Colonia Agricola Oriental, our Mexican listeners hopefully will correct me on that, my Spanish, uh, Mr. Guerrero encountered something so bizarre that it opened an entirely new chapter in the history of Mexican UFO research. Mexico, as you may know, is a hotbed of UFO sightings. He videotaped a dark, solid object that was almost static in the sky, but spinning slowly, featuring what looked like a human form with arms and legs, perfectly visible, giving the impression that he or it was floating freely in the air. Since then, many of these so-called flying humanoids have been videotaped in Mexico and the southwestern U.S., especially in Arizona. Yeah, one of the most interesting ones is they call it La Bruja, which is... Oh, yeah, that was... Yeah, yeah. the the witch. You you could find that on YouTube, but there's a lot of copies that are... Well, there's a lot of videos that are stupid. But anyway, so this week's question is tougher. Uh, Well, if you didn't get last week's, there's probably a minor chance that you'll get this. So anyway, where does the lake monster known as Mugwump live? And that was also the name of the head monkey in the children's book, The Twits. Well, I think you're thinking Mugglewump. Whatever. Maybe, maybe he's a, a King Kong among lake monsters. And, anyway. Yeah, the swimming ape, the undersea ape, mer-ape, whatever. Oh, we're just confusing boat. everyone. Anyway, the Mugwump. The, wherever Mugwump lives, that's the answer to the question. Whatever lake. All right, so get, it, get that right and win a copy of my dad's most recent book, Turning Home, God's Ghosts in Human Destiny. Or God, ghosts, and human destiny. I always put an S there. You're a polytheist at heart. <sighs> so I said call that last us. Week. Yes, I know. It's actually two weeks ago. All right. So call right. us locally at 401-766-1240 or nationally at 800-449-1240. And if nobody gets the answer before the end of the show and you still think you have a shot, drop a line to me at ben at behindtheparanormal.com. Amy Vickers is Chief of Operations of the Star Child Project and is a colleague in this project with our good friend Lloyd Pye. She is one of the world's foremost experts on the Star Child skull, a highly unusual 900-year-old human-like skull found in Mexico in the 1930s. She's been in the, involved in the project since 2004. On the website, www.starchildproject.com. So Amy Vickers, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Oh, hi. I'm going to turn that up a little bit. A little trouble here. Okay, well, go ahead, Ben. Uh, okay, get our so, first questions. So, Amy, the Star Child skull was found in the 1930s, right? That's absolutely correct. It was found by a Mexican-American girl who was holidaying about 100 miles southwest of Chihuahua. She found it in a an old abandoned mine tunnel and bought the two skulls home as as near as we can tell, some kind of souvenir. 
Oh, well, you just basically answered the second part of that question. So, wasn't there a skeleton with it, or did she just find the skull? Yeah, we've been wondering about that. Like, what happened to the rest of it? She actually found two complete skeletons. She found a normal human skeleton lying on top of the ground, and buried in a shallow grave next to it, she found the entire Starchild skull skeleton, which she described as misshapen. And she originally actually dug up the entire Starchild skeleton, collected all of the human skeleton bones, and was trying to bring the whole thing back. But she was, as I said, a teenage girl. She'd gone off exploring where she wasn't supposed to be. She gets halfway back to the village and realizes, hey, wait a minute, I might get in trouble for having these human skeletons. Maybe I've done something wrong. So she panics and just hides them in the exposed tree roots of a, a tree in a gully on her way back to the village, thinking she'll figure out what to do and come back and get them later. That night, they just happen to have a flash flood that washes away the entire two skeletons. So a few days later, water clears. She goes looking for them and finds the tree roots completely empty. She walks down the ravine and finds just the two skulls. She probably could have found more if she kept looking, but when she finds the two skulls, she stops, turns around, goes back to the village, puts them in a suitcase and brings them back to El Paso where she keeps them with her life. Okay, well, that answers that. All right, so how old is the skull, and how do you know? Well, we did radiocarbon dating, or C14 dating, which is uh, just a dating method that they use how long something has been dead for. And in the case of the star child skull and all that was found with it, we had them both independently dated at separate times, and both of them came back at the exact same age, 900 years plus or minus 40 years. There's always a, a wiggle room where, as far as dating is concerned, so they came back at 900 plus or minus 40. Oh, so that is, we gave the figure of nine. I wasn't sure if that was accurate, but thank you. All right, so how long has the skull been studied, and by whom, and what lab tested it? It's actually been studied by a bunch of different labs. Since 1999, Lloyd Pye began testing the skull, uh, not himself, of course, taking it to different labs to be tested. The thing they did was x-rays, which was just done at a hospital uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada, from there, they went on. It's looked at by different dental experts in Canada and America. Uh, they've had several rounds of testing done. Uh, the most recent report is from 2003. That was the genetics lab out in California, which has since been bought out by another company and changed its. Um, Dr. Ted Robinson out of Canada put together a team of 11 experts that created a, a report on whether or not the skull could be some kind of deformity. And the answer they had was that it absolutely was not. It didn't fit the pattern for any known or suspected type of deformity. Uh, it, Dr. Ken Pye, no relation to Lloyd Pye, just a, a coincidence of the name. Dr. Ken Pye over in England did a lot of work on the skull for us. It really has just been tested by more institutions than I can can rattle off in one radio show. It's had a, a long history in the last 12-odd years. Wow. So what are the latest findings? Latest findings are actually a new DNA test that we've had done by a lab here in the United States. They went in using a kind of DNA recovery called shotgun sequencing, 
which is a, a technique that has been refined over the years. It gives a much more accurate result than the DNA testing we had done in 2003. And this new shotgun sequencing has recovered some fairly substantial segments of the nuclear DNA. Everyone has two kinds of DNA. Nuclear DNA is the kind you get from both of your parents. It's when you hear people talk about your genome, that's your nuclear DNA. So we've recovered a fair amount of that nuclear DNA. What our geneticist did once he had recovered it was compare the samples he had to basically all of the DNA that had ever been recovered by any kind of public funding in America, which is held in a great big database at the National Institutes of Health in Maryland. So he compared his sample to the samples of all known DNA that's ever had public funding touch it. And of the samples that he sent in, some of them came back saying, this is human DNA from chromosome this, that, or the other. Some of them it was from chromosome one, and I think there was some from chromosome seven. And other sequences that he sent through the database came back saying, this does not match any kind of DNA from anything, not from bacteria, not from cats, dogs, fish, mice, gorillas, humans, Neanderthals. This isn't even a similar match to anything in the database, no match found. And so we knew at that point that we really had some something burgeoning on very solid proof that we had found something that had never been seen before on planet Earth, something that really was alien. So you don't think this is a um, hybrid at all anymore? This is just straight, plain, garden-variety alien, right? Well, in the testing that we had done in 2003, the genetic testing from 2003 by Trace Genetics was able to recover mitochondrial DNA. Now, remember I said everyone has two kinds of DNA. Mm -hmm. Mitochondrial DNA only has the DNA from your mother. Your mitochondrial DNA, your brother's and sister's mitochondrial DNA is all the same as your mother's mitochondrial DNA. Hers is the same as all of her siblings, which is the same as their mother which is the same as their mother, which is the same as their mother. It goes all the way back. A few years ago, they did a study where they figured out that everyone's mitochondrial DNA could be traced back to just seven original groups, seven original women. So when you hear that mitochondrial Eve theory or the, the seven mitochondrial Eves, that's what they're talking mm -hmm. about. So yeah. mitochondrial DNA, we were able to recover back in 2003. And they recovered a very small amount, but it was enough for them to, to recognize it as human DNA from haplogroup C. But they weren't able to recover the nuclear DNA, which is from both parents. So they just assumed, well, if we're able to recover the mother's DNA but from the mitochondria, but not nuclear DNA, well, it must be something funny with the father. The father must have DNA not close enough to human DNA to be recognizable. So that's where the hybrid theory came from. Mm -hmm. Now our geneticist has been able to recover the nuclear DNA and the mitochondrial DNA in much bigger quantity. And the mitochondrial DNA now is what's really blowing everyone's head off because the mitochondrial DNA, we've recovered 10% of that. That's a very substantial amount of the mitochondrial DNA. And we have found that DNA to be so radically different from human DNA. It's more different from human DNA already than Neanderthal DNA, than Denosova DNA, than any of the pre-human DNA. It is just so different. There's no way that anyone can say this is human DNA. All right. Well, now Lloyd was on Coast to Coast AM just, just on, was it Friday, I believe, um, 
So I hope he he didn't steal our thunder here. It's ironic. Ben and I are on coast to coast tonight. So, but, oh, there uh, you go. Yeah, it's it's, it's a kind of a uh, interesting coincidence. But uh, despite that kind of coverage and what you've said here on this show, why isn't the mainstream press all over this? Well, because we're not to the point now that we're able to write a scientific report and have to go through the peer review process. Even if we had 100% of the genome today, just magically we've got two years' work done and, and it's today and it's all finished and our geneticist writes a paper that's perfect and we're going to put it out for peer review, then the peer review process can take three or four years in, in extreme cases like this mm-hmm. to go through and actually be published by anyone. This is, is a very long and drawn-out process, and people tend to be afraid to jump on the bandwagon until they see it from some authority that they trust saying that this is the real thing. That's so at sure. this point, we're, we're not holding our national press conferences. We're not publishing a preliminary report in Scientific American. We're not doing any of that stuff. Because right now they just poo-poo what we were doing anyway. They would say, this is preliminary, we, we can't believe it. Even when we have everything, they're going to make it hard for us. But right oh, you, now yeah, with absolutely. what we have, yeah. e- even though it's proof enough for you, me, and most people out there to say we're going to prove that something's alien, that's a really extraordinary claim. Yes, it You've is. You've got to have the extraordinary proof. You can't just have the regular kind of proof like we have. You have to have the 100% done, absolutely ironclad. Anyone that wants to can go out and repeat the results for themselves just to show that we've done everything right. You need to just have everything lined up before people are willing to listen to you. But we are definitely working toward that. We've, we've discussed with our geneticists the possibility of doing a preliminary report, and that still might happen. But again, just because it would be so hard to defend it with only the 10% done, I mean, we could defend the 10% that we had done, but all we could say is that we've got 10% of something that we've never seen before. That would still give skeptics an awful lot of wriggle room to say, oh, well, the other 90% is going to be exactly what we expect it to be, and this is just some kind of fluke. And, you know, they'll make up something that sounds good to people who don't really know what the whole story is. But right now, all we can do is just tell everyone, look, we have this, it's there, it's real. You know it before everyone else does. You're going to be able to tell all of your friends, hey, I knew this before it was cool, before it was on the 6 o'clock news, but we will get there within the next couple of years of, of this being something that is just accepted and known throughout the world. Okay. Now, despite everything you've said, Amy, uh, there are accusations that this whole thing is a hoax. People say the DNA samples were contaminated, uh, which the older you get, the more likely that could happen. Uh, some say it's the result of ancient Mexican skull pressing. You know, you name it. It's it's been said. Others, uh, there was a yeah. Sometimes, like the explanations for these things are more ridiculous than the theories themselves. I know. Like, but what say you about the uh, the naysayers? There are certainly a lot of them out there. And in fact, our most recent one is someone on YouTube that created an account that's an exact clone of Lloyd Pye's official account. And uh, they, they've just done a little trick. There's a lot of L's in the words official Lloyd Pye. And so they've done a trick where they're using a capital I that looks like a lowercase L. And so this person's going out pretending to be Lloyd Pye saying all kinds of crazy things out oh, there dear. on YouTube. And that's just the most recent example. There's all kinds of people out there saying things that just are completely wrong, they're outdated, they're from more than a decade ago, 
they were inaccurate to begin with, you name it. Like you said, they have explanations for it. And all I can say is it's just a real shame that they're going to look as silly as they're going to look in a couple of years once we do have the complete genome, once we are announcing this to the world. All of those people are going to be trying to delete all of those postings on the Internet in a hurry where they, they said all of these things that are wrong. Well, there's a lot of time in between when you finally get the report out and when it's, all the peer reviewing is done. But do you have any like safeguards if somebody tampers with the evidence or anything like that? Well, that's the great thing about DNA. It, it doesn't matter who does the work, how many times they do the work. It's like math. Two plus two always equals four. The DNA is always what the DNA is. We have multiple samples in different locations so that if someone did try to take the skull, tamper with it, do anything like that. We have uncontaminated samples in multiple countries in multiple locations so that there really is no way to make it impossible for us to continue this research. There are always going to be people that say that we're wrong, that we've done it wrong, that, that something hinky is going on. I mean, there are people who sincerely believe that all of the evidence for dinosaurs and fossilization and and everything is just completely made up and wrong. Uh, you know, the young Earth creationists who say the Earth's only um, so many hundred or so many thousand years old and everything, no matter how much evidence there is to the contrary, is just completely wrong. There are going to be people out there who refuse to believe it no matter how much you prove it, no matter how much evidence you have. And you just have to let those people go and, and count on the people who are sane and logical to pay attention, to get the information and to make an informed decision for themselves. And at the end of the day, there's really only one conclusion that you can draw from the kind of evidence that we're getting here, and that is at the very least no one's ever seen this before. It, it's not like anything ever found on planet Earth, and that alone should be enough to get people's attention. But more than that, we have the kind of evidence right now that really strongly indicates is alien. This is not from planet Earth. This is not of terrestrial origin. We're not a, a UFO landing on the White House lawn, but this is as rock-solid, iron-clad proof as you can get. If someone landed a UFO on the White House lawn tomorrow, you'd have everyone saying it's photoshopped and it's makeup and it's a stunt and it's special effects. There's just nothing to convince some people these days, but this really is as good as we're going to get. Hmm. Okay. Well, that <clears throat> makes sense. Hey, Amy, let me ask you this. Has anyone made an, an attempt to reconstruct the facial features of this skull, what, what this, this person uh, actually looked like? Well, we've had multiple people do forensic reconstructions, and they all come out looking an awful lot like a gray alien, like the, the Whitley-Strieber cover of Communion, yeah. uh, like the, the prototypical gray alien, the very narrow chin, the bulbous head, the heart-shaped head, the, the very large, unusual almond-shaped eyes, the very small nose, no brow ridges, tiny mouth, strange ears, short stature. It, it is absolutely the prototypical grey alien head every time someone does a real forensic reconstruction of it. Where in Mexico was this found? I mean, you mentioned El Paso, so presumably one of the states near there. What... what... It, it was found 100 miles southwest of Chihuahua. We don't have an exact location. Um, at some point in the future, once the drug violence dies down a bit there and we have the funds for it, we would like to mount an expedition to try and find the area 
maybe there are, are other skulls or maybe by some miracle we'll find some of the other star child bones. Yeah. But all we have for now is 100 miles southwest of Chihuahua, Mexico. As I was going to ask, what efforts have been made, if any, to find uh, further evidence in that, in that vicinity? Yeah, has anyone ever tried to find the rest of the skeleton or are they just sort of like, ah, whatever, it's gone forever? Not to our knowledge. Now, that's not to say that treasure hunters haven't gone out looking for it without letting us know. We've certainly been very open about where we were told that it was found. But the unfortunate truth of it is the skulls that we have, the human skull and the star child skull, were in that dry mine tunnel in the shade for 900 years. They're beautifully preserved. If, if, if it had been a moist environment, we wouldn't have had a chance. If they'd been out in the sun and, and bleached by water and sun exposure like the Kennewick man, we wouldn't have had a chance. We were so lucky that they were in the place that they were in and, and left alone for as long as they were because it preserved them so beautifully. Even if someone went and found the right ravine and found the bones and brought them back and tried to do testing on them, there's a good chance that any genetic material in them has been really severely de degraded by exposure to the elements and the environment there. Mm -hmm. It's going to be almost impossible to find any bones whatsoever that were from the star child skull, and even if we were able to find them, the chances of getting anything useful out of them are really tiny. So we'd almost have to peg our hopes on finding another star child skeleton in another mine tunnel, and there are a lot of mine tunnels in that area, so it's not out of the question. But it is a bit of a long shot, so it's not something that we're rushing to invest a lot of time and effort into while we're getting so much useful information out of the skull we already have. Okay. What about the human skeleton? Did you guys find anything interesting about that? No, the human is a female. She's not related at all to the star child. Completely normal for a, a Mexican person of that time. Uh, she was fairly short, maybe five foot tall. Um, the skull is completely normal in every respect, except that it was cradleboarded. As you said, the, the Mexican head shaping, the, the cradleboarding technique where an infant's head is strapped to a board and the back of the head becomes flattened because it's pressed up against the flat board. She did have that done. So every time someone says, well, the star child is obviously cradleboarded, we can hold her up and say, no, this is cradleboarded. The star child skull is completely different. There, it's not possible that this was cradleboarded. And incidentally, Dr. Robinson's team back in 2003 ruled out cradleboarding right off the bat. So any, anyone that tries to tell you that it's any kind of artificial head-shaping technique or some cultural thing, it's just completely wrong. They need to go and visit the Star Child Project website and educate themselves. Okay. Well, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we'll be right back after a commercial break. We're speaking with Amy Vickers, uh, Chief of Operations of the Star Child Project, about a possible alien skull found in the 1930s. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hello, this is Manny Brando, reminding you that my show is on every Tuesday from 6.05 till 7, with the exception of the last Tuesday of the month. It's a lot of fun. It's live. Join me. What a show. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. Okay, and I wanted to tell you about Amazon Kindle, one of our 
sponsors here, and uh, I didn't bring my text with me, but I'll say it from memory because uh, I, I love Kindle. It's a great machine, and it's a lot cheaper than it used to be when it first came out. And you can get download books, you can, including all of my books, uh, the great uh, popular one, The Footsteps in the Attic, that uh, we're in the process of reprinting, and we don't have uh, too many copies left, but you can get it on Kindle all you want. And uh, you just go to Amazon.com, and you can uh, find out about the Kindle uh, process and how to buy uh, the actual Kindle device and download over, I believe it's uh, several hundred thousand books now that are on, on there, as well as newspapers and magazines. So it's a great thing for vacation, for the beach, if summer's coming. And you can sit there and not worry about your book uh, getting wet or dried out in the sun or losing it or whatever, and you have your Kindle device fits right in your pocket, and you can have a great time with that. Lots of things to read. Uh, it's, uh, of course, very much more uh, economical than having to go to a bookstore and buying a new book. It's uh, roughly, I guess, uh, most of my books are roughly about half the price they'd be if you got them at Borders or somewhere. And, uh, yeah. So check it out. Amazon Kindle, folks. Amazon.com and uh, see, what, uh, see what you can do with that because it's a great, great little device. So let's go back to our guest. Amy Vickers, uh, Chief of Operations of the Star Tile Project. And Amy, I was going to ask you, uh, what uh, what sort of people were living in the area in which this skull was found 900 years ago? Uh, well, it, it was a fairly primitive culture. The mine tunnels, we think, were actually there before 900 years ago. We think that those are ancient mine tunnels that may have been utilized by the people that lived there. Uh, in fact, the old mine tunnels are often used as dwellings. They just put a, a cloth or something at the front of them and they turn them into living spaces. Um, but the, the kind of people that lived there, they were basically modern humans. They, were, they weren't they were Neanderthal or pre-human or anything like that. Um, they would have used own tools. They, they would have been fairly advanced in the scheme of things, nothing like with running water or anything like that, but they would have used tools. They... Uh, would possibly have, have done some minor something. They would have kept animals. Um, they they were people that lived a pretty good life. Uh, mm-hmm. They grew grew a lot of grain. They would have made bread. There is evidence on the teeth of the skulls that we found that they ate a lot of grit in their diet, the kind you get from uh, stone grinding flour or corn. So it, it would have been a pretty good life for them back then. Were were they uh, in the jurisdiction within the jurisdiction of the uh, the Aztecs? No, more more recent than that. Oh, that um, would have been okay. All right, yeah, my Mexican history is a little rusty. All right, what about uh, folklore in that vicinity? As as uh, we, any student of folklore will will tell, and, and as you as you undoubtedly know, there's always some grain of truth in some f- story that has come down to us. Uh, is there any local folklore that might indicate the presence of somebody like this star child at some point? Oh, absolutely. There's actually something called the star child or the star being legend which says that alien beings came down from the sky and they, they referred to them as gods, lowercase, small g, but they're very specific that they came from the sky. They were physical, tangible beings, multiple beings that you could touch and interact with and speak with and that these beings would come and they would make a woman who had previously not had children, who was barren, uh, who, who had some other reason why she hadn't had children, and they would make her pregnant, an immaculate conception. They would make her pregnant, and she would give birth to a child that she would often be asked to raise for the first few years of her life, and then those aliens would come back, take the child, and take it up into the sky with them. Gee, and this legend is specific to this area. Other areas have legends of 
women having the child taken before they bring it to term, but in this specific area, women were left with the child until it was a few years of age, and then it would be taken away again. Well, one thinks of legends of uh, abductions and uh, pregnancies and people going on, supposedly going aboard spacecraft or whatever they are and seeing uh, children um, in the fetal stages and everything else. But as you say, I haven't heard of that uh, situation where people were allowed to uh, raise, the, if that's what it appears to be, people were allowed to raise their children uh, in that manner, at least uh, briefly. That must have been a very difficult, I mean, if, if that's true as it comes down to us, that must have been a very difficult experience for the mothers. Well, one can imagine that it would be. One yeah. of the features of the skull that was found with the star child, which is quite interesting, is that that skull has a healed concussion mark. It has a crack on the skull that's healed over. So it's possible that if the, that was the situation with this woman where she was impregnated with a, a star child, an alien embryo where it wouldn't have had any of her genetic material in it, uh, where she somehow was the mother and brought the child to term, she may have suffered a head injury that made her crazy, that made her not want to give the child back or, or maybe even cause harm to it. Wow. And it's, it's possible that that's why we found the two, the, with the human lying above the ground and the star child buried, maybe something happened to it. We, we have no evidence of any kind of trauma or anything else with the star child skull. We don't know how it died but maybe somehow it died or was killed and she brought it to the mine tunnel, buried it, lay down next to it and, and died or killed herself next to it. There's so many possible scenarios. Yeah, there are. Yeah, and all, we, all we can do is speculate. However, do we have an indication how old, how old the star child was? Was it a child or was it a, a, an adult alien or, or what? Do we know? We don't. We don't really have a consensus on that right now. We have a majority of our specialists that say they think it's a child around the age of five or six. Having said that, though, those experts are basing that age on the teeth. There are some teeth up inside the bone of the star child's jaw that haven't come through the bone yet. So they say, they look at that and they say, okay, this is a child. They look at the teeth that are already erupted and the ones that are still up in the bone waiting to come down and they make that estimation of five or six years old. So that sounds like it should be pretty solid. But at the same time, those teeth aren't like normal children's teeth. They they don't look like children's teeth. The enamel on them is different than what you would expect to see on a, a child five or six years old. Some of the other features of the bone are not consistent with a child of that age. So there is some dissent. It, it's possible that it could have been 20 it's possible that it could have been 200. There really is no way to know exactly how old it would have been. But we, we have a situation where the teeth look like they should be that of the child, but at the same time they're ground down far more than any child could. Even if you had a kid that just ground dirt in its teeth all day long, you couldn't have worn your teeth down that much by five or six years of age. So it just doesn't quite make sense. We don't know exactly yet. All right. Something like this occurring within a culture would seem to probably prompt some sort of artwork or, or, or recording, even for people who had no system of writing. Is there any uh, cave art or, or anything of that kind? I guess that's 900 years ago. It wasn't that far back, really. But uh, is there any indication, uh, not just in folklore, you say there is, but in art, local art, local um, uh, art, expressions of art, uh, of any presence of these sorts of creatures around at that time? 
Well, unfortunately, we haven't been lucky enough to be able to go to that specific area and look for ourselves, but there, there are multiple instances of cave art right the way through history, as far back as you can go and still have cave art, of beings that don't look right, beings wearing strange helmets, being taller or being shorter than the humans that they're depicted next to, being of a different colour. There's certainly a lot of evidence that primitive people saw or uh, some people say they imagined it, but they're consistent enough for me to think that they saw or at least were told about the same kinds of beings. Uh, they're, they're often depicted as being, as I said, a completely different size or being floating in the air above where the humans are drawn. Okay. Well, we are getting into the realm of uh, speculation here, but it is uh, interesting to speculate and not necessarily done so from a, uh, a perspective where you don't know what you're talking about because you obviously do. When you have a situation where species of this kind, if that's indeed what they were, are, are interacting in such an intimate manner, one wonders how different they could really be from one another, DNA-wise especially. Uh, there is a theory that um, I happen to have espoused in my last book, which was that these were not aliens from another planet, but either, uh, and this is not this is just my idea, certainly it's been speculated upon by others, these were people possibly from uh, other parallel worlds where they're not really all that different from us. There, there is a, a strain of, of a continuity in the DNA, perhaps even ancestors of ours, descendants of ours. Uh, what say you on, on that? Is, has there been any, any speculation about the, the cultures involved, whether they really were aliens in the classic interplanetary sense of the word or whether they might be more closely related in, in some way? I mean, has anyone in the project uh, gotten into the cultural aspects of that or the... Well, unfortunately, it's hard to tell anything about social interaction or culture just from a bone, which is really all that we have. We certainly. don't have any yeah. anything, any artifacts that were found with it. But we've certainly been open to absolutely every theory about the skull. Uh, I know that Lloyd Pye took great pains to make sure that any psychics that wanted to were able to have a chance to experience the skull and get their impressions of it. And unfortunately, we were never able to get a consensus. Of, there must have been maybe 50 psychics that had a look at it, and every single one of them came back with a different story, a different interpretation. Really nothing ever gelled in a way that was consistent enough for us to have any faith in it. But we're certainly open to any possibility. We're dealing with something that no one has ever seen before. There is no way to explain this within the realms of mainstream science. I don't see any reason why it couldn't be almost anything. The horizon is wide open right now. Yeah, well, I had, I'm bending on another question, but I had had wanted to uh, ask about whether you brought in any psychics on this stuff. And, of course, you know, we, we tend to take them with a kind of a pillar of salt, as I say. But we uh, then again, there, there are the contributions they can make. But, as again, you found no uh, it, w remote viewing or whatever they did uh, did not yield any consistent uh, uh, opinions. No, unfortunately not. Um, Lloyd Pye's partner, uh, when I first became involved with the Starchild Project, uh, was a, a brilliant lady by the name of Karina Bryant, who was actually one of the very few female shamans, who was very sensitive, was a remote viewer, and she was able to bring in a lot of people from that kind of community, some of whom had very pr pronounced reputations for being very good 
at getting things right and there, there just was never any consensus. You'd have one person that would say that the star child and the, the female skeleton found with it were lovers and some would say it's a mother and child and some would say they never met each other and, and some would say the star child was really scared and some would say it was really happy. We just really never got any clear consensus on anything. It was it was very discouraging, but we just, at that point, were willing to try anything. There, mm. There is no right or wrong way to do this. It didn't come with an instruction manual. Right. Mm. Okay, so what's the next step for the Style Trial Project? Well, right now we're in the process of securing funding to complete the entire genome recovery and analysis. We, there's there's two kinds of DNA that I talked about. We've got 10% of the one that's only from the mother, the mitochondrial DNA. We have 0.0001% of the nuclear DNA. That's what most people are aware of when you talk about a genome. It's your nuclear genome, the whole package from both parents. We've got 0.0001% of that. So it's certainly enough to be very interesting, but not enough to really convince anyone. So it's going to take from the minute we get funded, at least a year and more likely two years to have everything completely done, to know exactly what it is, to be to the point of starting the peer review process. But we're certainly moving forward with it and we're very excited about what we've been able to recover already and what's likely to be recovered in the future. Okay. I I had one more question here, too, about the religion of this area. Now, as you say, not too much is known about these people, but uh, you did mention that these entities were supposedly considered gods by the local people. Do we know, what do we know about that religion? I mean, how, how, what, what, what people always, they may have beliefs, but there's always a response to those beliefs. I mean, were they performing human sacrifice? Were they contemplatives? I mean, what was the deal on that, or do we know? Unfortunately, I, I wish I could speak from a position of more knowledge. I know that that area was not known for human sacrifice. Um, they good. were... Probably the, the religion that most people would be more familiar with, they were more like Native Americans or Druids where it was more nature worship um, from my understanding of it. They, they did have their tradition of gods that were formed their creation story of how the world came into being and how they came into being. Um, but as far as I know, it, it wasn't like the Aztec Incan Maya got to bring gold and sacrifice people to keep the sun god happy. As far as we know, it was nothing like that. Okay. Now, again, I'm, I'm asking you to speculate here, but are you, and I know we don't know exactly where this particular item, this artifact was found, but the uh, Mexico, as we mentioned earlier, is a hotbed of UFO sightings, flying, humanoids, you know, anything weird, you name it, in the sky, and people are reporting it. Do we happen to know if there are sightings of UFOs to this day in this vicinity, generally speaking, of Chihuahua and the, and, and the south south of that, as you mentioned? Or, or is that something you can speak to? I can only speak to it briefly, and that is to say that, yes, absolutely, there there is a very strong cultural tradition. Not only... There's always a question in Mexico whether they're really seeing that many more UFOs than, for example, the United States, yeah, or whether people there are just so much more open to reporting it because there isn't as much the fear of ridicule. But certainly the Chihuahua area is well known as being a, a UFO sighting place. Okay. All right, very good. Ben, did you have any further questions? Uh, no, they Oh, yeah, did. actually, yeah, I oh, did. Yeah. Well, where can people get more information, Amy? Oh, yes, very important one. 
We have a fabulous website, www.starchildproject.com, S-T-A-R-C-H-I-L-D, project.com. And Lloyd Pye has a great e-book out now that you can read on your Kindle, mm-hmm. uh, which will give you all of the backstory in a really compact package. Only takes about an hour, hour and a half to read. Excellent. But uh, all of the important stuff is on the website, along with pictures, artist reconstructions, anything you could hope to know. Well, we love Lloyd. As a matter of fact, he, uh, he inadvertently gave us the uh, motto of this show, where everything you know is wrong. And I asked him, I said, do you mind if we use it? He said, well, I didn't come up with it, but so go ahead. So we're grateful to him uh, for many things, and certainly for putting all the work into the Star Child Project that's, I'm sure, going to contribute a great deal to our knowledge, and also for the everything you know is wrong motto. It says it, says it all. <laughs> Well, well, Amy, I'll pass that on. Oh, please, yeah, tell, give him our very best. And uh, well, thank you very much, Amy. Uh, and and um, you know, we love you too. And keep it keep it going. It sounds like you're doing some very very important work. And oh, yes. uh, we'll be in touch. Uh, about, you know, whenever something new comes up. We're really working hard at it. Thanks so much for having me on. I always enjoy it. Very good. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. All right, Amy Vickers and the Star Child Project. Let's. Uh, Move on to some a uh, couple of emails here. Well, uh, don't want to get them piled up too much. Here is uh, one it's, uh, that is constantly coming up. People want to know where is Dancing Past the Graveyard, my next book. Uh, it was supposed to have been out in 2010. Here it is We're rolling through 2011. And this is from Robin in Oregon. And Robin wants to know, I have back-ordered your book. Oh, dear. And you're supposed to read that. Okay. I have back-ordered your book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, through Borders Books. This was three months ago. I still have not gotten your book. Are you still printing this book? Well, okay. A lot of people are asking, and I do apologize profusely for this. One of the problems was that the original publisher went out of business. All right, and uh, what was it's? Uh, I'm using the I don't know. I'm using the excuse of not having uh, the publisher pinned down yet because I'm um, I'm still working on the book. Things are coming up that I want to include in it. Uh, ben is making contributions to the work that I, that I, I never thought uh, would be so quickly done, and I just there are things I want to include that are very important to the message, and I haven't finished it yet. So I do apologize for that. I hope you haven't paid for it yet. But everybody's asking where the book is, and I'm very embarrassed. But it's not done yet, and as soon as it is, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it get it out to you, and we'll uh, we are working on we're, it. We're working. Yeah, exactly. So again, uh, our apologies for that. So. Now we started this one on our CBS show last night. We didn't. I don't think we quite finished. Well, it. Well, we basically did. I summarized. Yeah, so, okay, all well, let's go on to something else. All right, here is one. Uh, this is from John. He says we can use his name, so I won't get in trouble with Ben. Okay. John Terry from Mount Pleasant, Michigan, at the great WOMC in Detroit. I guess he listens to us on. Uh, and go ahead and read that one. All right, I'm a retired state trooper. Uh, Good job, sir. I had spent the last three weeks with my father-in-law in in, uh, hospice before he died. I saw him talking and reaching for someone on the other side. He talked to someone, angels? Well, actually, I think I got this because some... In my English class, there was this woman who... uh, she, She worked in a hospice unit, and apparently there is a medical explanation for why people have these experiences... Because the blood slows down, because your heart rate is slowing down, so it does something to your brain. I don't remember the scientific terms, but you end up seeing and hearing things that, quote-unquote, aren't there. Maybe you're just becoming more sensitive as your blood slows down and your metabolism slows down and everything starts shutting down. That's just that's the medical explanation for it, but maybe you have a different explanation for it, Dad. 
Well, I'm, I'm think that, that what you say is, has some validity to it. I have been present at the deaths of, as far as I can remember, about 12 people. <clears throat> most of these, excuse me, <clears throat> not all, but most of them were when I was a graduate student and a student for the priesthood. And I was working in a psychiatric hospital, notably either Norwich State Hospital in Connecticut or Augensburg State Hospital in New York State. And there were many, there were more inpatients than there were today in the psychiatric wards, and many of them were very old, and some of them died there. One explanation that you mentioned, Ben, is that is possible. However, when you stand there and you're in the presence of hospital staff and, and, and the person who was dying, and things happen outside of the person who was experiencing this, things come off shelves, you feel presences, you see gauzy structures moving through the room, which happened on several occasions, then you certainly assume that it's not just an internal process by the person who is in I'm the process. I'm saying the medical explanation. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, of course, the medical profession is not going to come out and say, aha, you know, we have angels coming to get the person. Uh, well, at one point, I actually was, was, I was the only one there, and, and I say I may have imagined it, but I'm not the sort of person who imagines things. Came around the corner into the the room of a man who was was dying. There was no one else there. And I saw extremely clearly a cloud-like structure, gauzy structure, with a human hand just in the process of releasing his hand and pulling back into this gauzy, foggy structure, which immediately disappeared. I only got a glimpse of it, but I'm sure of what I saw. And in another... At another point, there was another man, and I've mentioned this on the show several times because it's, it's rather moving. He was an Irish fellow who was uh, in the process of, uh, as we say, translating. I don't believe in death, but he was, mm. his body was, uh, was passing away. And there was a doctor and several nurses and me st- standing around the bed. And we were just there for him, uh, assuring him that he was loved. It's a very important thing to do when someone is dying, assuring him that they, he was loved and that we were with him and touching him. Very important. All of a sudden, we felt the most overwhelming presence in this room. We all felt, we all turned and looked at the same spot in the corner. He, the man, the patient, sat up, and he was paralyzed. He was paralyzed from the neck down. He sat up, and he said, Abba, Ba, which I didn't know Hebrew then, but I know some of it now, and that means it's a very intimate way of referring to your father. Daddy is coming. And we... And then he, he lay back down, and he uh, he passed right then and there. And there was a beautiful feeling in the room. There was a smell of roses in the room, which didn't last very long. But it was at, we were we were changed. And the man obviously he was an old Irishman. He didn't know a Hebrew, you know, for sure. And, and it was so. These, these are things that happen. Uh, there is, uh, if, if you want to get medical and scientific, you can say, well, everything. If you believe in evolution, in the Darwinian sense, everything has survival value. Everything in us, physically or whatever, has survived, instinctually has survival value. What is the survival value of an, of an NDE, of a near-death experience, which is something which has developed in most of us and it's reported across cultures? Usually it's very pleasant and good. Sometimes it's horrible, but most people report uh, going through a tunnel and, and seeing religious figures or ancestors or whatever. And uh, what is the survival value of that? I mean, your body's dying, so why would you? We, we have developed such a, a tendency. That's that's my answer scientifically. And again, not being a scientist, perhaps I shouldn't say, but it's I've seen these things in the trenches, and uh, they are at times very, very beautiful. 
And I think there was a certain mercy involved in this. And I think that your father, uh, certainly here answering our, our question from our listener, uh, John, is, is very, uh, is a good thing and should be cherished. I wouldn't analyze it. Uh, obviously, he was having a, a good experience, something that was, was a, a blessing for him, and I, I would just accept it. You know, so that I would just say that. Okay, now we have, uh, <clears throat> now here's, here's another typical email that we receive, and I, I'll, I just want to answer it because she took the trouble to send it. And it's uh, another person says we can use her name, and it's Carol uh, Bradford in Orange, Massachusetts. Okay, so Carol writes to us, I'd like to know more about the old, old Victorian in uh, Gardner, Mass., which is supposed to be haunted. Can you enlighten me by email? Okay, well, I'm going to email her on this. But just, you know, you wouldn't believe the numbers of of emails we receive uh, from folks who assume that we know all about their local haunted houses, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that I have heard of the Victorian in Gardner, but that's about all. I don't know about you, Ben. You've been hobnobbing local. I I know less than you do. Okay. So I just, I, I thank people for their emails on this, but we, we just are not familiar with every local house there is, you know, in, in Canada or the U.S. And, and people think we live, we, we do live in New England and people assume we know about houses here, but they, they really are everywhere. And as we always say, the entire planet is quote unquote haunted because worlds blend. Uh, parallel worlds will uh, intersect, will uh, you know, interact, and these give us the impression of ghosts and things, and it's just really people going about their business in parallel realities, and it's a strange thing, but that's what we believe. Uh, that's what I believe after 41 years of working in this subject is is actually happening. So every every town has its uh, its uh, I suppose haunted areas. Every uh, rose has its thorn. Every rose has its thorn, and uh, I'm afraid we cannot speak necessarily to individual cases, but we, we will try when we can. But thank you, uh, Carol, for writing in any case. But I do want to mention this this uh, pipe smoker email from Jim in Hamilton, Ontario, because uh, we, we dealt with it on CBS last night, but a lot of people here in the local area probably don't listen to that show, and it's very, very interesting. And uh, Jim has reported that he lived in a house where he, they, they frequently, presumably this is in Ontario, Canada, uh, and presumably uh, this was uh, an, a rural area from what he describes, but he was living in a house where he would very often feel, or I should say smell, tobacco smoke. And this is a very, co- aromas and odors are very common in paranormal experiences. Now, uh, we did say that in when you have a, a shag carpet or a rug uh, and, and you live in a damp area, smoke especially can be absorbed into this rug and when the dampness gets to a certain point in the humidity then the smell can be released so th- that might have been it but uh, all on the same time there are times when people are here are smelling uh, these aromas especially smoke of, of tobacco or cigarettes uh, and it's not uh, a damp area and that doesn't seem to be an explanation but uh, he goes on here to say uh, the building was uh, built in 1915 and they began to restore this and I've often heard when people begin to renovate or restore that strange paranormal things will happen. Well, why is this? Well, if it is paranormal in explanation, I've heard all kinds of amazing stories about this. It happens because, in, in our opinion, what you're doing is disrupting the consciousness. You can almost think of it as a disk, sort of spreading across space-time, embracing many different worlds, because we live in many different worlds. And when you own something or you live somewhere and it's kind of part of you, it forms, uh, and, and this is a, a just a metaphor, really, a lump 
uh, in this disk, as it were, things we know, people we know, things we love, places we live. And when that is disrupted by some other person and some other consciousness stream, it can connect with the people who once were there or loved it or will be there or who are part of it. It's a, a consciousness stream, so to speak. So I think that very often when people renovate or, or even, even sometimes even paint, uh, strange things occasionally will happen. I think it's because it's just sort of disrupting a certain consciousness stream that was very strong. Not always, but sometimes. Now this gets even better. Uh, Jim is reporting that he uh, was awakened uh, by the strong smell of pipe tobacco at one point, and he heard a gentle rustling. Uh, he went downstairs to the dining room, and uh, there was a big bay window and overlooking uh, railroad tracks, uh, with a field behind those, and to his utter shock, he says, uh, there in front of him was a small steam engine. And I'm into trains, it was 060 type, and uh, he was he was saying that this, uh, he saw somebody walking, uh, which he, he assumed was the previous owner of the house, and they got up on the engine, and the engine started chuffing down the tracks and disappeared into a fog. The owner got in the engine, not the new owner of the house, the old owner. Oh, the old owner, right, if that's who it was. Anyway, I thought this was really cool, it is a classic textbook experience of the multiverse i think that jim lives in a, is either very sensitive or lives in a place where the energies are right where these worlds can still be seen parallel to us where the guy is still living in the house and is working on the engine that's that's just what the the, the train crew would do they would stop if the guy lived near the tracks they would stop the train or the engine and then he said that this engine was not by itself it had two passenger cars in the back of it and uh, whoever, if the fellow who lived in the house worked for the railroad, he'd get out and get on the engine and uh, start his day's work. Didn't really even have to go anywhere. Talk about a carpool. But uh, I think that's a classic and very, very interesting experience of uh, the paranormal uh, experience through the multiverse. So, Jim, thank you for writing. And I know we've covered this on two shows, but I thought it was a really great email and very interesting uh, experience that he that's had there. Idea. Nothing to worry about, I would certainly say. Go, so, go. Well, if you're going to do emails, just do like, oh, no, don't, don't even worry about it. We probably have like two and a half minutes anyway. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, we will. There are always, uh, no, there's no shortage of emails. Yeah. So anyway, uh, many thanks to our producer, Steve Bianchi, and we'll see you next Monday, May 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, right here on WON 1240 AM, and we will welcome Leslie Kahn, author and journalist, for the first of two shows on UFOs and the military. Send your questions and comments to Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. And if you're a Nighthawk or can deal with podcasts, check out Coast to Coast AM tonight. Uh, locally at WPRO in Providence, 6.30 AM. I don't know if I'm supposed to give other people's radio call letters on the show here, but also Worcester, uh, all over New England, and there are over 500 stations in the country that carry it. Ben and I will once again be the main guests for three whole hours until five in the morning. It'll be fun. We'll be revealing some things about our work in the multiverse and what we have been learning. So check it out. Uh, also check us out on CBS next Sunday night. And we're out of time, so I want to leave you with a January 1965 statement from John W. McCormick, Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. Quote, I feel that the Air Force has not been giving out all the available information on the unidentified flying objects. You cannot disregard so many unimpeachable sources, unquote. Okay, so now that you sped through everything, I didn't even get to say anything. You can always get free podcasts of all our shows along with show schedules and guest information at www.behindtheparanormal.com. Thank you, Ben. Tell us what you really think. Oh, well, I did. Nope. So thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.